But we're returning to Matthew chapter 2 this morning. But I'd like you to start in Matthew chapter 6 as we begin. We're working through the story of Jesus' birth. And if you've not been with us uh, for a while, yes, I'm still preaching the narrative of Jesus' birth. We started in Matthew 1, uh, and, and we kept going. And particularly, we are focusing on the prophecy in, in Isaiah 7 that Matthew says is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus, that he is our Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew makes this clear in multiple ways in Matthew 1 and 2. And then on as we continue to read through the Gospels, we study Matthew's genealogy in the opening of the Gospel. We see the way that Jesus' birth, the coming of Emmanuel, appears at the climax of all redemption history. In fact, the coming of Jesus initiates the last days, which is why when you read the New Testament, they talk about our living in the last days. What, everything that has to happen for final salvation has already taken place. And now we're just waiting for the rest of it to be worked out. Then in the rest of chapter 1, we saw that Matthew was highly interested in proving to us that Jesus was born from a virgin. And this was the only way that Jesus could be born Emmanuel, God, with us, both divine and human, conceived in a human womb by the Holy Spirit. And last week, we began to study chapter 2, and here we discover that Matthew has another intense interest. That is, proving that Jesus is indeed the messianic king who was born to rule. We really don't understand what that means by experience. Most of all, or most of us, um, if not all of us, have never really been governed by a king. In fact, most of the kings in the world today rule in conjunction with a parliament of some kind, a representational government. There are very few absolute monarchies left in the world. You can find them, but they're, they're very rare. So when you think of Jesus as a king, it's difficult for us to imagine exactly what that means. But we find an expression of what it means here in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, in the section of the Sermon on the Mount that we call the Lord's Prayer. And let's read this together. The words are on the screen, and I want you to say it with me. Ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have forgi forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay, so we just read the Lord's Prayer. But did you just pray the Lord's Prayer? Because if you prayed the Lord's Prayer, what you just prayed for, among other things, is for the kingdom of God to come which means that the will of the Father will be done on earth in the kingdom, even as it is done in heaven. Is the will of the Father done in heaven? Absolutely. No one sins in heaven. God's will is obeyed absolutely. Is the will of the Father done on earth? Not so much. Uh, not when the God of this world is blinding the minds of unbelievers so that they will not see the glorious light of the gospel of Christ, which is shine unto them. And not when the prince of the power of the air is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2. I know it's common for 
Some just speak of the church as the kingdom, and, and sometimes we talk about the, the advancing Christ's kingdom and so forth. But we can look around and see that the kingdom has not yet come, not, not in the way the Bible describes. If we disobey God, the Holy Spirit deals with us and leads us to confession and repentance, but we don't fear some kind of legal action or civil punishment because we're not living in a monarchy, a, a kingdom, the way the Bible describes, that will come someday. But when we pray these words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not only are we praying for the kingdom of God to come, where Jesus will literally reign as king, but we are also expressing our desire that the will of God be carried out on earth the same as it is in heaven. That is only going to happen when Jesus is the king on the throne, judging the world, and his delight, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 11:3, will be in the fear of the Lord. In other words, his passion as king will be to see the Father's will expressly carried out on earth as it is in heaven, just like he modeled time and time again in his own ministry. But there's something else we're praying. If we can pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then it means we're also telling the Father that in the meantime, we personally at least will follow the will of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. How can we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven and yet not be striving to do God's will ourselves? So at the least, on our little patch of earth and our little sphere of experience, as much as possible, by God's grace, we're endeavoring to live and make decisions and spend our time in the way that honors the Lord, our King, and to call others through the gospel to know this King and submit to him, because that is what we should be desiring to give to the Lord Jesus every day. Honor, trust, obedience. If we belong to him, we must put ourselves under his authority. It is our mission in life to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, to desire God's will to be done on earth, even as it is done this moment in heaven. So, Near the beginning of his gospel, Matthew wants to communicate to his own people the fact that Jesus is unmistakably the king. He's setting up everything he's going to say in his gospel with these opening chapters. And as we saw last week, Matthew weaves together the elements of this account in a way that highlights Jesus's right to the throne. Matthew begins, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. We saw this last week, but already there are several elements in the story whereby Matthew assures us that Jesus is king. First of all, the location of his birth. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Matthew hasn't even mentioned the place where Jesus was born until now. We, we don't think about that. Remember I, I said we, we, we have all the stories mixed up in our minds, and, but we have to we look at what Matthew is saying. He hasn't mentioned his Bethlehem until this moment, and he kind of mentions it in passing because it was an essential information earlier. 
But now he brings it up because later in the story, the chief priests and scribes show Herod, Micah 5.2, which names Bethlehem as the place where the king will be born. Out of you, O Bethlehem, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. By the way, Micah 5.2 goes on to say that the coming forth of this ruler is from of old, from ancient days, literally in the Hebrew, from days of eternity, which points to Jesus' pre-existence with the Father. If I were writing Matthew's gospel, I would have wanted to include that part from the Old Testament. But it's not included in Matthew's account because the point here is the location of his birth. That's why he, uh, he brings up the idea of Micah 5.2. It's one of the assurances that Jesus was the ruler who was born to shepherd God's people. The second assurance that Matthew gives us is the worship of the magi, wise men or magi in the Greek, who came asking, where is he who is born king of the Jews? These men were representing a great ruler or rulers, perhaps, from other lands and were commissioned to welcome this Jewish king into the world, to recognize his authority. That was done in that time. And then there is the sign of the star, for we saw his star when it rose. The sign was likely divined through the movement of the stars and, and the planets that are positioned differently every night. And these magi read the sign in the heavens. So they went to Jerusalem to find this king of the Jews. Where else would you go to find a, a, a king of the Jews? You'd expect him to go, uh, you'd expect him to be born in Jerusalem. But when they learned that the birthplace was in Bethlehem, they left Jerusalem to journey south. And Matthew uh, 2 and verse 9 says, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, that was when they were before their journey, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The star supernaturally led them from Bethlehem and marked the exact spot where Jesus was, as if God was saying, here he is, here is your king that you have come to worship. Last week, we considered all of these ways that Matthew assures us that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of the Jews, born with regal authority. But there's a fourth way that Matthew assures us that I saved most of the time for today because it's a little more complicated than the other three. And that is the reaction of the rival Herod. If these magi showing up asking about a king had been some quaint, non-threatening cultural ideal, you know, a little baby born in the magnificent town of Bethlehem, or the, I should say the insignificant town of Bethlehem, Herod could have laughed it off, dismissed it out of hand. After all, he was Herod the Great, a powerful ruler who spent his entire career securing his own throne. In fact, he was one of those kings that wielded so much authority, kind of like Alexander the Great, that when he, on a smaller scale, when, when he died, his kingdom had to be divided into various portions so his less competent sons could be able to rule over them. But Herod was able to rule over it all. He was that powerful. That's why the New Testament speaks of Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas uh, and Philip. They were all sons of Herod who inherited part of the kingdom. But as powerful as Herod was, when the Magi showed up looking for a king, Herod wasn't laughing. He wasn't dismissive. He was afraid. 
Verse 3 says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And by his reaction, and as we see that a lot of the story has to do with his reaction, Herod tips his hand that he knows he has usurped the throne and that the true king may have actually arrived. Jesus is that king. But Herod was a power-hungry tyrant who would do anything to keep his throne. He was ruthless and evil and dangerous. The, the Jews hated him. In fact, if you've never read a history of Herod's dynasty, if you've never read Josephus around uh, book 16 and 17 and 18, this part of uh, history of, of the Jews uh, between the Testaments, it's a fascinating read, and I would highly recommend it. Herod was actually given his power by the Romans only because his father, uh, Antipater, was a good friend of Julius Caesar. And dad wanted to get his sons into positions of powers under this growing, burgeoning Roman government, now that, now that Caesar Augustus, the, the august one, he named himself. Uh, was on the throne. So Herod's father was actually half Jewish and half Edomite. You remember the uh, self-serving Doeg, the Edomite, who caused Saul to slaughter the priests of Nob in David's time? The Edomites descended from Esau. So Herod was in the bloodline of both Jacob and Esau. He was, from a Roman managerial standpoint, a pretty good king. He brought stability to Israel in a very turbulent time when Rome was taking over. His rule, ironically, was the reason Joseph and Mary could actually travel freely and, 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 and not be uh, you know, overcome by robbers or, or getting, gotten off their course. And he built a lot of impressive sites in Jerusalem at the time. Herod expanded and, re, and, and renovated the temple, in fact. In fact, uh, when, when the temple was destroyed, it still hadn't been finished with all the magnificent renovations that Herod had started. He wanted to make the temple the most renowned temple in the world. It was a monument to himself, of course, not to the Lord. It had nothing to do with the Lord. But he wanted to make the temple one of the wonders of the world. A lot of you know about the western wall of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today. That's the, where you see the, uh, the men, the, the Jewish men in the black hat, sometimes with the side curls, and they're standing there praying uh, at the wall. Uh, sometimes we call this the Wailing Wall. The Jews do not like it when we call it that. Uh, if you're in Israel, don't call it that. Um, but it's, 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 it really, all it is is a retaining wall that was built uh, to support the expanded courtyard that Herod had built up above. Herod built that wall. Another irony. So Herod made the Roman Senate happy with him, but he was a bad lot, and his reign is bespotted with horrifying incidents. When Herod's brother-in-law was becoming too popular, uh, he accidentally drowned in a shallow pool. Uh, Herod had several officials wrongly accused and beaten to death. He grew suspicious of his own two sons and had them strangled to death, even though they were innocent by all accounts. And five days before his death, he ordered another son to be executed. Because of these acts against his own family members, Caesar Augustus, who knew Herod, jokingly said that he would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Herod had a favorite wife strangled when she was wrongfully suspected of a crime she didn't commit. 
He had religious men burned alive for petty infractions. And for some odd reason, Herod had this nagging worry that people would not mourn for him when he died. So he had a solution to assure that on the day he died, there would be mourning in Jerusalem. As he lay dying, he ordered all of his Jewish noblemen throughout the land to gather in Jerusalem to await the news of his passing. So when they came, Herod confined them to the Hippodrome. And he secretly gave orders to his soldiers that immediately upon the death, not to come in and announce the death, but actually to shoot them all with darts. And he also commanded, this is, this is, you can read this in Josephus, I'm not making any of this up. He, he commanded when he died that one family member from every family in the land be killed. You have to sacrifice one family member. That way he knew people would be mourning his death. Now, the royal family never carried out any of these orders. When Herod died, they came in and announced his death in the Hippodrome. They said, you can all go home. <laughs> and so and everybody was relieved, you know, when he finally, finally went to his grave. But this is the kind of king he was. So when these strange visitors arrived asking about the birth of a king of the Jews, that a sign in the heavens had revealed to them, Herod did not sneer. He was worried. And when he was worried, all Jerusalem was worried. They braced themselves, wondering what onslaught of the king's wrath they would have to endure. So Herod tried to lure the Magi into his plot to find this newborn king and take care of him right away. Verse 7 says, he summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he said to them, uh, go to Bethlehem. And he said, go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. I always wonder if he smiled you know, when he said that. And I'm, I'm sure the, the wise men knew what he was up to already. But the father who sent the son to be the savior of the world understood Herod's intentions. And again, he sent divine interventions to protect and preserve the child. First of all, God sent the Magi off in another direction so that they could bring uh, no news to Herod. He, uh, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Next, God moved the holy family safely far away from harm. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Now, the angel could have probably sent Joseph and Mary several places to hide them from Herod's reach. But Matthew comments that this they're going to Egypt, was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now let's pause there for a minute. Matthew is referring to Hosea 11.1, 1, which says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Remember, God says to Pharaoh in Exodus 4, I think it is, uh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I'm telling you, you let go of my firstborn son or I will take your firstborn son. God thought of his people very dearly, very fondly as the firstborn exalted son of a family. Matthew says that Jesus going into Egypt sets up the fulfillment 
of Hosea 11.1. 1. But Hosea 11.1 1 is not a prophecy that needs fulfillment. It, it's history. In Hosea 11, God is reminding his people what he did for them when he rescued them and brought them out of Egypt. So when Matthew calls this a fulfillment, what it means is that he's seeing something very significant going on here. A correspondence between God's rescuing Israel, his firstborn son, out of Egypt from a ruthless ruler who wanted to annihilate all of Israel. And God saving his only begotten son, the ultimate Israelite, from a ruthless ruler who wanted to eliminate him by hiding him in Egypt and calling him out of Egypt after Herod was dead, just like in ancient times. This is the first reference in Matthew to Jesus as the Son of God, which is another way of saying the virgin-born Emmanuel. We don't, we, we don't, we're used to hearing the title Son of God. We don't unpack it in our minds to think about what that actually means. But you have to have a human and a divine being in one, both God and man, to be the Son of God. So he is the Emmanuel. He is God with us. Furthermore, there are several places in the Old Testament where this coming Messiah, the coming king, is referred to. You ready for this? He's referred to as God's son. One of the most familiar, perhaps, as you read the Psalms, is Psalm chapter 2, which says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Revelation uses this to talk about the, the rulership of Jesus Christ when he comes in his kingdom. So he calls the son, the Messiah, the king, the same person. So when Jesus, when, or I should say when God called his son Israel out of Egypt, Matthew says that this act anticipated the son coming out of Egypt, the Messiah, the king, God with us. As we've seen in our study of Matthew 1 and 2 over the Christmas season, Jesus is the climax, the crescendo of all of human history. So what we've seen before with Israel was part of the history, but Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God was doing in Israel's history. Verse 16 says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod may have been enraged, but really he carried out what he had had in mind all along. Eliminate the rival to the throne. Herod and Jesus were rival kings. The fact that Herod ordered the murder of male infants to and under suggests at least two things. One, that the Magi saw the sign of Jesus' birth sometime before he was born. Maybe it was around the time of the conception of Jesus. And, and two, Herod was overestimating perhaps a little bit to make certain he would remove the threat of this king. We don't know how many children died in this outrageous event. Some say as few as 20, but it's probably higher than that. But the fact that Josephus, that's the historian I was reading when I'm telling you about the life of Herod, the fact that Josephus doesn't mention the killing of the children in the history at all, in fact, no historian does, 
suggest that in the context of all of the terrible things Herod did otherwise, this massacre wasn't significant enough to mention. I mean, we're horrified by it. I remember as a young boy not wanting to read this part of the Christmas story because it majorly destroys the wonder of Christmas when you get to this part of the narrative. Yet in this terrible travesty, Matthew sees another recapitulation or correspondence between Israel's history as God's son and Jesus as the ultimate Israelite, the son of God. Matthew says, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. It is really captivating to see what Matthew is doing here. And to fully appreciate it, we have to go back to a couple of Old Testament passages. First of all, we're going to go back to Genesis 35, where Rachel, that's Jacob's beloved wife, dies in childbirth, bringing her son Benjamin into the world. Some distance from uh, Ephrath, it says, Rachel went into labor. They're, They're on their journey to Ephrath. Rachel is going into labor, and she had hard labor, it says. And when her labor was at its hardest, active labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. So Rachel is weeping and lamenting in severe pain, just like God would promise to her when he cursed Eve in Genesis chapter 3 because of the sin that she and Adam brought into the world. But in her most severe hour, they comforted Rachel with the news that her labor was not in vain. She was giving birth to a healthy baby boy, a son. The answer to Rachel's weeping, the comfort for her sorrow, was literally the certainty of the coming of a son. Verse 18 says, as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Ani, son of my sorrow. We could translate that son for my sorrow. But his father called him Ben-Yamin, son of my right hand. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And you Bethlehem, Ephrathah, we're used to hearing. Now, in Jeremiah 31, the Lord uses this part of Rachel's story to comfort his people and give them hope, even though they are about to go into exile and have great lament themselves. So he says in verse 15, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, that's that's Benjamin's territory. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. This is Rachel in the sorrow of labor, despairing not only for her life, but the life of her child. But just as the midwife had given Rachel hope that the son would survive, that he would be born, Jeremiah continues in verse 16, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping. And your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. 
and your children shall come back to their own country. I wish we had time this morning to explore this whole section of Jeremiah 31. This is the same chapter where the Lord assures Israel, you're still my beloved son. And it's a chapter where he promises them a new covenant. So there's much going on here in this fulfillment of Jeremiah 31:15, a lot more than meets the eye. Yet in the weeping and wailing in connection with the birth of the son, it is a reminder, first of all, of the wicked world corrupted by sin and evil in dark hearts, but also a reminder that we should not despair. We should not weep. Because even in the midst of the sorrow, God is preserving and calling forth his son. He is a son of sorrow who is exalted at the father's right hand. Herod was right to fear because you know what? Herod will one day be judged by this son. And by his fear and his terrible effort to thwart the rise of this child, Matthew says to us, this is your king. This is how a rival king would react if a real king came into the world. He's not just a helpless baby in a manger. He's the son of God. That is the Messiah, Emmanuel. He's our king this morning if we know Christ. And with that in mind, I'd like to close by taking us to a conversation that happened with Jesus and his disciples as Jesus neared closer to the hour where he he would become the sorrowful son. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples if they can rightly identify him. Now, remember what I've said. Everything he's saying about the king here in Matthew 2, he's setting up so much of what he's going to say in the gospel. And it connects with what Peter says here in Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus says, who who do you say that I am? And, And Peter, as you remember, answers, you are the Christ, that's the Messiah, the king, the anointed one, the son of the living God. God with us. Peter brings messiahship and sonship together in the same title, just like Psalm chapter 2. It's the very thing Matthew is demonstrating for us in chapter 2. He's our king. And this is a profound truth that God has revealed to Peter and the other disciples. But as you know, Peter's profound answer goes to his head. He starts thinking of himself as the star baker that day. And soon after that, only a few of you know what I'm talking about probably, uh, soon after that, when Jesus explains to them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and be raised again the third day, Peter is emboldened to rush where angels fear to tread. Matthew says that Peter took Jesus aside. He basically says to Jesus, "Uh, can you step into my office a moment? That's the idea. He motions for Jesus to come with him and takes him aside from the others. I, I, just, I just imagine the look on Jesus' face as he steps aside when Peter calls him over. Can you imagine? How did Peter do that? Jesus, come here a minute. We need to talk. That's not how you treat a king. And Peter says to Jesus, in essence, what are you talking about? Literally, he says, if you read the Greek text, God have mercy upon you. That's not going to happen. And Jesus responds to Peter in a way that immediately reminds Peter who is in charge. He says, get behind me, Satan. 
because Peter is speaking like the enemy. And we always focus on the fact that Jesus calls Peter Satan, and that is very significant. But I want you to think about the fact that Jesus also says, get behind me. You see, when Peter took Jesus aside, he was treating Jesus like an inferior, or at the least like an equal. And he showed this by shifting positions. Peter took charge of the conversation, brought Jesus into a different space, making Peter dominant, putting Peter out front. But Jesus immediately corrects the situation, not only rhetorically, but physically. He tells Peter, uh, Peter, you are out of line. Get back in your position. What is Peter's position? Behind Jesus, following submissively. That's how you respond to a great king. You trust him to lead you. So what does Jesus then say to all of his disciples in this moment? He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The words behind and after that I underlined there for you, they're the same word in the Greek New Testament. Jesus tells them, this is your right position. Coming after me, following behind me. That's our position this morning. And when you follow me, Jesus says, this is where I'm headed. I'm headed to the cross. And that comes before the crown. But notice that Jesus says, if anyone would come after me. This is a call to follow Jesus, to get behind him, to rightly position ourselves, to submissively obey him. But there are also so many times when we ourselves, we know this, right? We get out of line. We place ourselves in the dominant position because we are thinking only about our will, our desires, our way of seeing what lies on the road ahead. We fail to say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And instead, we unwittingly say, like Peter is suggesting, my will be done on earth. That's not how you follow a king. And that's not how we should follow our king. And my word to you from Matthew, even as it is ministered to my heart this week, is let's make sure that we are in a right position, following submissively behind our king. Because he's not merely our king. He's our savior. He's our hope. And let his word be our command. Because he's the son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. He's our Emmanuel. Father, thank you for this reminder.